It was Mary B. McMillan of the North Carolina AFL-CIO who originally articulated this thought, but it was repeated several times over at the International Labor Communications Association convention two weeks ago. The South is not about America's past, but it's a predictor of actually America's future. And that's not in theory anymore, because the last time I checked, Indiana is not in the South. The last time I checked, Michigan is not in the South. We used to say right to work is a Southern thing. We don't have to care about it anymore. We don't have to care about it. That was the voice of our guest this episode, Tafari Gabre, laying out something that struck me like the twist out of some Twilight Zone episode. What if the common wisdom that the South was stuck in the past with regard to labor relations is dead wrong, and what we're seeing is actually our country's future? Submitted for your disapproval. The South leads America in all the worst statistics. It has the lowest life expectancy, the highest rate of single parent families and households without bank accounts. The South is where the poor children have the worst economic mobility and where, as teenagers, they are least likely to graduate from high school on time. And yet, the, sub, the poverty rate in the South has actually shrunk since 1960. Will the poverty rate across the country has increased. Tafari Gebre is the executive VP of the AFL-CIO, and one of his projects is making sure that the workers in the South have the capacity through the labor movement by which to take control of their lives, working and otherwise. Gebre didn't start in the South, nor did he start in this country. As a refugee from Ethiopia, his journey to the U.S. for a more stable life is similar to the stories of those migrants at our border who Gebre characterizes as economic refugees. Gebre started his life in the U.S. in Los Angeles, where he led campaigns for sanitation workers and eventually moved his way up to the head of the Orange County Labor Federation. There, he opened it up to all workers and led the charge against the complacent establishment for systemic change. And when I got into Orange County, what I found was for every one of those housewives of Orange County, you see sipping martinis by the pool all day long and nobody knows what they do. There are at least two to three hundred people who clean that pool, who fix their bed, who teach their kids, who cook for them, that nobody is talking about. And we decided to organize those people, genuinely to open up ourselves and to say, it doesn't matter if you are a union member or not. We're going to create a space for you to come and agitate and conspire and try to, try, try to move forward. And we started seeing changes, subtle little changes. Some of the biggest obstacles, as Todd Conger, he would tell you, became actually the establishment Democratic Party people in the, in the county. They just had it the way it is, don't change the way it is, and we're fine with what we have. Why are you messing it up? But that's not what we saw when we organized with the, with the immigrant community, which Orange County in percentages has a lot higher immigrant population than actually Los Angeles does. When we started organizing with the Vietnamese community and genuinely opened up the Labor Council and said this is going to be a hub for anybody who wants to come in and organize and conspire and move forward with that, with us. And we just didn't get changes because we elected one person over another person. We started having fundamental changes, like in places like Anaheim where, where, where 
Disneylanders. We just didn't want to change the city council. We wanted to change the city, the city council for the next 200 years. And in order to do that, we went after system change. We went after the way city council members are elected. And starting this upcoming election, they no longer will have at-large elections. People will be getting elected by districts. And when that happens, we'll have permanent power. This is a man who is unafraid to challenge systems, and his presence in the leadership of the AFL-CIO, the largest labor federation in the country, is something that any progressive or socialist should be able to get behind. I got to speak to him, and we talked about these subjects and more, and if I sound nervous, that's because I truly am. Uh, Tafari Gebre has been instrumental behind some of the most progressive steps that the AFL-CIO has taken in years, if not in decades. It's like if uh, like a staunch Democrat got to interview Joe Biden for 12 minutes, or if a solid Republican got to interview BOTUS, the president and Earl of Hell. Uh, it's a big deal. It's a big get for the People's World podcast. We appreciate all the time he was able to give us, and we hope to have him on the show once more in the future, hopefully. Uh, so here it is, my interview with Safari Gebre. <laughs> Hey, uh, this is Patrick Foote with People's World Podcast. I'm here at the ILCA convention with uh, Tafari Gabray, the executive vice president of the AFL-CIO National. Um, I have a few questions for him. What do you consider the biggest challenge of organizing in the South? That's a big theme of this convention. Uh, I come from the South where a lot of organizers who I went to school with, student organizers, like to talk about you know, the idea of leaving the South for whatever reason, whether it be to go to a bluer state or bigger cities or just to, they think, have an easier job at it? I think the single biggest challenge yeah, in the South is, uh, you mentioned part of it, uh, that is capacity. And if we do we have even the capacity to, uh, we don't need to bring, even without even bringing anything from, uh, uh, from out of the South, to provide capacity for Southern organizers, Southern activists to stay in the South and uh, give them the hope of actually winning in the South. Uh, I think I, I think just lack of capacity from the left, and not only the labor movement, entirely from the left, entirely from the progressive community. I think that's the biggest challenge that we have in the South. And I think the biggest challenge and the most fixable challenge that we have, uh, that is uh, creating capacity in the South. What would you tell a young person, a uh, young organizer, maybe born and raised in the South, who may have thoughts of abandoning ship for whatever reason, because we know organizing is the hardest job in the world, first of all. <laughs> and second of all, organizing in the South is another level. What words of encouragement could you maybe lend them uh, to keep them where we need them right now? I, I would say, um, as an organizer myself, um, uh, uh, the South is very attractive to me because it is an empty, it's, it's an empty blank. Uh, if you're an artist, uh, you would want a, uh, a canvas that you can actually draw whatever you want to draw on it. And uh, and the South, what we have is, uh, you know, a blank canvas. And we can draw, if you are a great organizer, you can draw something beautiful. You can draw something uh, organic. 
because we have tried to bring artists to draw in that canvas from all over the place, and it doesn't work because they don't have the southern essence. We don't have, including myself, we don't have the southern essence. We don't have the culture of the south. We don't have uh, the passion of the southerner, the southerners uh, themselves. Some of the best organizers I know around the world, uh, uh, from New York to Los Angeles to Seattle to all over the place, they have southern roots. But just like you said, they left to the south. And um, the thing is, I think uh, the rest of us, our contribution should be, I'm going to go back to the theme that I was using, capacity building. Can we build the capacity? Can we actually pay for the canvas and lay out the canvas and let the southerners themselves draw whatever they want to draw um, uh, uh, on that canvas? There is a canvas that's being drawn on and written on. It's just being drawn and written by the wrong kind of people from the south, and that's the competition we have to get into. So if you don't mind, um, shifting gears maybe a little bit, um, your story itself is something, it's, it's a great story. Um, you, you're an immigrant to this country. Um, I first learned that you were an immigrant to this country a few months ago when we were at the march against Joe Arpaio in Arizona at Netroots. Um, and you spoke with great passion and empathy about, you know, the people who would traverse the desert to get to this country for whatever reason. Um, could you tell me a little bit more about your journey to the U.S. and maybe how it affects your stance on immigration reform? Yeah, uh, I'm not just an immigrant, I'm a refugee. And uh, I think it's a term that being that's being used currently um, uh, uh, about, uh, about refugees. And I hear um, sometimes on NPR and other places uh, people trying to dis distinguish between uh, uh, political refugees and economic the, the e economic uh, the immigrants. The economy of any place, uh, especially today in the global economy, uh, doesn't happen by accident or doesn't happen because, like the weather, we couldn't predict it. That's a man-made thing, and there is no real distinction nowadays between war refugees and economic refugees. Uh, uh, for example, you know, you know uh, we passed these trade deals. And we, uh, you know, that's why I'm so passionate about the Central American stuff, is people are coming from countries, uh, specifically three countries who are part of the Central American Free Trade Agreement. Uh, and our government signed on a dotted document to do free trade with those with, with those people for free movement of capital, and it hurts me that we don't allow free movement of people when we are allowing free movement of capital. Um, uh, so that's why I'm re really passionate about. Um, uh, I did uh, an editorial piece on uh, uh, on this uh, uh, with the Las Vegas Journal um, uh, uh, when child refugee crisis was happening in this country, which our government to this day refuses to consider it. A refugee, the, 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 uh, to consider those kids refugees, even though they are clearly refugees. And uh, uh, this is where I become critical of my adopted country, which I love, which I have prospered through. Uh, uh, that is, uh, well, American exceptionalism is, uh, uh, as American 
uh, as anything. Uh, sometimes it gets in a way, and I wonder uh, what would have happened if we let actually the UNHCR, uh, the United Nations Higher Commission on Refugees, uh, to determine who's a refugee and who's not in our southern border when they come in. But we're an exceptional country, so the UN is not going to tell us what to do. We use our law enforcement to deal with immigrants. We need social service, not law enforcement. At the, the you know you know at the end of the day, I just challenge anybody. Uh, if they think so that their kids can send them money or the kids can just make money, they will let them dare send them for a 1,700-mile journey in 110-degree heat, knowing that a neighbor's kid left for that journey and didn't make it because they died in the desert and, uh, uh, and, and vultures uh, uh, get to uh, take advantage of their bodies. Uh, uh, it's inhumane for me to think there are people who think that people are just saying, yeah, kid, just go. There are circumstances that are, that are creating this. And uh, in, uh, in no small measure, what we do and what our government does has contributed a great deal. And this is important, that if we believe we live in a democracy, we believe in an excep exceptional country, we cannot separates themselves from what our government does as a policy. Uh, if we are in democracy, if we vote for someone and those people who voted for create things that we don't agree with, we have to take responsibility for it because we created it as voters to start, to, to start out with. So that's why immigration is really an important issue for me as an immigrant and as a ref refugee. That's why I'm very, very passionate when it comes to immigration. And, and just one more question. I know you have to leave soon. And thank you for sitting down with me here. Um, speaking of refugees, uh, we have, as you know, a, a crisis in the Middle East right now with Syria. Um, I'm just curious if does the AFL is the AFL CIO talking about that? Is that something that they plan on maybe integrating within? Uh, a push for broader, you know, you said mo free movement of capital, but w we seem resistant to the free movement of labor. Is it, is there any space for the AFL-CIO to lean in on this? Well, there is, and and we actually do a lot of work. I just came back f uh, uh, about a month ago from uh, uh, Indonesia, where we organized the AFL-CIO did through our so solidarity center. Um, uh, we organized a gathering of. Um, uh, uh, organizers from uh, uh, 42 countries to talk about global migration and what's happening to migrant labor. Um, uh, if people don't know, uh, you know, we have countries like Qatar, uh, just forget about the Syria stuff that is a lot more complicated. You have countries like Qatar, whose population is 200,000 people. The, the, I mean, the total population of the country is 2.2 million, only 200,000 Qataris. That means you have 2 million migrant workers who take care of 200,000 rich, oil-rich Qataris. And these are people who get recruited in different countries and when a promise of a job, they pay to recruiters to take them to those jobs. The minute they get to Qatar, they have to surrender their passport to their employers. And a, a, a vast majority of them don't see a pay uh, the, 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 their pay. They are told they can't leave the, the, the they can't leave the country, and they are building stadiums for 2022 World Cup, 
which our boys would be going and put uh, and, and, and playing. So far, 1,400 people have died building those stadiums. 1,400 people have died building those stadiums. And the estimate is by the time they are done, 4,000 would die. Not a single one of them, Qataris. So if we're going to address income inequality in this country, we have to look at the global income inequality that's happening all, of the, the, uh, the, uh, all, all over this world. And we have to roll up our sleeves and fight that. No one should be paying to get a job. A job should pay you. You shouldn't pay to get a job. And that should be a principle we fight on. And the AFL-CIO is leading that fight with uh, the ITUC, the International Confederation of Trade Unions. Uh, um, and uh, we have a campaign for anybody to check, to check it and uh, a hashtag red card to FIFA. And we're challenging FIFA. Uh, we can do better with the beautiful game that uh, I love. Uh, uh, I, uh, you know, I love to watch, but no one should die building venues uh, for people to enjoy uh, the great uh, sport of football, what you guys call uh, soccer. Um, uh, so let me just finish with this. 4,000 people would die building those stadiums. The total number of people who will play, who qualify to play in the, in the World Cup, is 730 people for two weeks. 4,000 people have died. So as a movement, if we don't care about those kind of things, we're losing our essence of why we became passionate members of the global labor movement. And, and so the, the whole issue of migration is like water in California. It's going to be a big issue coming up. And, and what kind of rights do we need for workers? If it is up to me, anybody who works anywhere should have the full protection of that country's labor laws to protect that person who doesn't matter what, where their origin is where they are, or where they are coming from. That's one thing. The other thing is we need to help people have the capacity, have the movement, and have the ability to work in dignity and respect in their own country so that they don't have to risk their life by migrating all over the place. That means we have to create global equality. It sounds like a pipe dream, but we have to fight for it. And I think that's what we're all fighting for in the end, right? Um, and there's a sense of inevitability to it, but sometimes on the hardest nights, it's it's f a far-off dream. But um, I want to thank you very much, uh, Mr. Gabriel, for talking to me, and um, I hope we can have you back on the show soon. <laughs>